Nathan in part three, as I try putting it all up and tie it together in a message I call Let It Shine, I want to talk to us really practically. I want to really challenge us uh, right down the line as to what that means for our lives. We're going to jump straight into our content. We're going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 12. And all of today's notes are in the Bible app by you version, should you want to follow along. John chapter 8 and verse 12, and it says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So let me just give you some, a little bit of context. What's happening here? Well, essentially, uh, we're told in verse 20 that Jesus had this conversation in the temple near the treasury. So the temple was kind of like the Jewish center of worship in their capital city, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the idea of the temple goes all the way back to when Moses was leading the Israelite people through the wilderness. And there was a, p- a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day that acted as a light in the darkness to guide them in the wilderness. And during that time, God asked or commanded Moses to build like a tent-like structure called a tabernacle in which his presence could dwell so he could be with his people on the journey. And that all of the Israelite people were to camp around this tent. Well, fast forward the clock a few hundred years and eventually the Israelites were able to take possession of the promised land. Uh, They have retaken Jerusalem. They're settled. And still God's presence lives in a temporary structure. Eventually, King David had in his heart that he was going to do something about this. He was going to build a permanent home for the presence of God. Unfortunately, he wasn't allowed to do so because of his because of his, of his integrity. So it, it befell unto his son Solomon to build a temple for God, which he did. He built a temple for God. And there was a period of, a, of several hundred years where the Israelite people, the Jewish people, were able to worship God in that temple. But unfortunately, the hearts of the people strayed away from God, and God consistently and constantly tried to call people's hearts back to him through the sending of prophets and through many other means, but they were, were unrelenting and unwilling to hear God's warning. So eventually, God gave them over to the consequences of their actions. They were invaded. The city of Jerusalem was besieged. It was sacked. And eventually, the temple was destroyed. And most people were taken out of Israel and carried off into exile. Afterwards, 70 years, a large portion of those exiles returned back to Jerusalem. God called a, God, God called a guy called Nehemiah and instructed him to rebuild the walls and God also called a guy called Ezra to rebuild the temple which they did and then there was a period of 400 years scholars call the 400 years of silence although God wasn't silent he was actively moving it's just in terms of the the Bible nothing really happens until all of a sudden out of nowhere a guy called John the Baptist shows up in the scene hearkening and heralding the coming of the Messiah Jesus Christ fast for the clock and then 30 or so years, and here we find Jesus in said temple talking to this group of people, which, inc- which included the Pharisees. Now, what's so interesting in terms of the setting is that the, the, the modern temple had three courts. So imagine a, a large rectangle rectangular structure there was a general outside court which is called the court of the gentiles in which anyone was welcome to come and be in that court and the first inner court was called the court of women and in that court only jewish people are those who are 
technically proselytes, those who had legally converted Judaism, were allowed into that court. And in that court, there were 13 different uh, places you could give your offerings. And then the inner inner court was called the court of the priests, where the sacrifices were offered to God in worship. We're told that Jesus is in the middle court, the court of the women, and he's near the treasury building. And we're also told that this happened at the end of a Jewish festival called the Festival of Tabernacles, which was a, a period of, of celebration and reminding of their time in the desert where the pillar of fire guided them through the darkness of the night. And part of the end of the celebration of Tabernacles, this is about six months before Jesus was crucified, it's the end of harvest season, uh, there was this celebration called the Illumination of the Temple Celebration. And it was a time where uh, this temple had these massive candelabras, these huge, almost like, there you see the motorway, you see those massive lights in the motorway that kind of shine the light down and their huge structures were told that these things had ladders up to them that young priests would go up and there was all these pots of oil that light these oil pots and the whole place would be lit up. And many uh, would talk about how from all around, because Jerusalem was on a hill and the temple was at the top of Jerusalem, from all around, whatever the, the celebration of illumination, everybody could see the city of Zion alight at the celebration. Here's an artist kind of impersonation of what it could have, could have looked like. And here you have these candelabras. And it's so interesting because for most people who are alive at this time, this was the most impressive demonstration of illumination they would ever see in their lifetime. I don't know what the most impressive light show you've been to was. Maybe it's this church. Maybe it's Malahide Castle. Maybe it's a rock concert. Maybe it's going to Disneyland and seeing the fireworks display. But back then, this was it. And when all the people were in awe of this most wonderful, most powerful, the greatest demonstration of illumination they'd ever seen, Jesus opens his mouth and says, you think that's impressive? You think that light's powerful? He said, I am the light, not of the temple, not of Jerusalem, not of Israel. I am the light of the world. And in this statement, Jesus, he's been very clear. He isn't suggesting that he's a prophet or a philanthropist or a great teacher or thinker, intellect, social revolutionary. What Jesus is saying in this statement, without any shadow of a doubt, is I am God. I am the light of the world and I am the light of life, which is even by today's standards, a pretty crazy claim. And in these two verses, we see three major things, major statements Jesus makes that should challenge us and inspire us to be like him and to to shine that light to the world. But of course, uh, a statement like that does not come without some degree of kickback, which the Pharisees that we saw in verse 13 did kick back. What's the first statement Jesus makes. The first statement he makes is, I am. Now, when you read this in English, you go, well, Jesus is just explaining, or he's using this metaphor to describe his his purpose, his mission, uh, his ministry. But actually, to the Jewish audience, this was far more significant than just simply saying, uh, this is a descriptor of, of what I'm doing. Because the name, the, the, the words I am literally describe for Jewish people the name of God. When Moses is standing before God in the burning bush, and he said to God, well, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? God responded by saying, I am who I am. I am. My name, I am. Because whatever the scripture you put up there, Savior, Healer, your Creator, what, He is. 
He's all of it. He is God. There is no one descriptor word that we can use in English to describe the totality of God. In technical uh, terms, it's called the tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, which means when Jewish people uh, try to describe God's name, they have such reverence, the whole God, they hold God's name in such holiness, they don't even say his name. They write down four letters. They're letters YHWH, which stand for Yod-Heh-Wah-Heh, -Heh, which basically, in essence, uh, symbolizes God's name, which is Yahweh. So holy is God's name and so held in high respect that Jewish people won't even say the name of God. That's how sacred it is. I think all of us as Christians should learn the importance and sacredness of God's name when it comes to passive conversation. But in this then, what does Jesus say? Jesus takes the forbidden tetragrammaton, um, uh, uh expression of God's name, and he basically says, I am Yahweh. I am God. The name that you won't even touch, the name you won't say because it's so reverent, so holy, so special, I'm that. Which, of course, shocked everybody. Because it's like, well, you, you cannot make that claim. How, 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 how audacious of you to try even, to even say the name, let alone claim you are the name. But Jesus came with a clear message. I don't have the light. I don't show the light. Uh, I am the light. I am, in essence, God in the flesh. I am God incarnate. I'm not just some prophet who've, who's come to point the way. I am God, which is, which is such an interesting thing. Why? Because if you look at nearly every other world religion, one of the things that, that is so distinctive in the Christian faith and is so different for those who follow Jesus is that where every other world religion begins with someone of a prophet-like figure receiving a revelation, writing down stuff, and pointing people to a new form of worship, Jesus is different to every other religion. And he did not do that he did not point the way he said i am the way he made everything in his message about himself in john's gospel there are seven instances where he says i am i'm the bread of life i'm the water of life i am the light of the world and each one of these claims what he's saying is i am god which if you are a first century follower of jesus may have been convenient or made sense or been easier to swallow when you're watching him literally heal sick people and open blind eyes and heal deaf ears and do miracles of multiplication and so on. But when you're standing at the foot of the cross and you're watching this person who is supposed to be Yahweh, Son of God, Savior of the world, dead on a Roman cross, the very guys you thought he'd come to save you from, all of a sudden, it becomes very inconvenient to be a Jesus follower on Good Friday. And so much so was that the reality we're told that when Jesus died, his movement and his message died with him. All his disciples were scattered. They were afraid. They were uncertain. They were probably second-guessing themselves. What did I believe? Who was he really? How could this happen? All the different emotions we go through with loss or if we feel deceived. And in essence, Christianity should not have existed a day after Jesus' death. Except he did not stay dead. You see, the Christian faith is not built on religion or tradition or, 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 or a form of worship or a format of worship. The Christian faith is built on this truth. Jesus lives. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And those same disciples who on Friday night were running for their lives, petrified, terrified, Peter even saying, I do not know the man three times, after witnessing a resurrected Jesus, something changes 
in them that makes them bold and brave and courageous to the point where just 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, the same Peter who was cowering in fear, telling people, I don't even know the guy, was standing up in his capital city proclaiming Jesus is risen. And every one of those first followers would go on to die for their faith. Why? Because they would not stop talking about, would not stop shining the light, the truth that Jesus lives. Now, yeah, I mean, maybe they're fanatical followers, but more than likely it was something, or someone, I should say, they witnessed and experienced that transformed them forever. The point is this. Jesus' claim is, I am the light of the world. I think this is a very important claim for us right now. I think the world should be open to this right now. You go, why? Why? Because, simply put, humanity cannot save humanity. I've said it all through this series. We've never been more educated never been more technologically advanced, never had such access to healthcare. We've never, as a Western civilization, had more at our disposal. We've never been as, as developed or as sophisticated as we are now, yet we seem so far away from being able to save ourselves. And you know, on a, on a normal week, you can kind of like brush that under the carpet and just overlook that and get on with it. But when you have a week like we had in Dublin this week, where there's mass rioting and looting, and destruction of property, and anger, all of a sudden, the very things that we've been talking about all through this series, the power of sin, and the destructive nature of humanity, all of a sudden, it all comes back to us. How could, as media outlet, my phone was blown, I had friends text me from all over the world. There are people from countries who have this happen all the time, texting me saying, we're praying for Dublin, what's going on? And I'm like, wow, what is going on? And all of a sudden, it's like news outlets around the world are going, Ireland, so friendly, so diverse, so inclusive. Cade Milifalcha. And all, that. all of a sudden, the city of Dublin is burning. And it's like, what's going on? And it's a complicated conversation. But in essence, what's going on is humanity cannot save humanity. Legislation, politics, government, money, prosperity, technology cannot save anyone. Only Jesus is the true light of the world. And he isn't a passive, cute, Christian ornament light that you took away in your house and bring out to church on Sunday. He is a light of active power that dispels the darkness. He is the only hope for humanity. He is the light of truth that dispels the darkness of falsehood. He is the light of wisdom that dispels the darkness of ignorance. He is the light of holiness that dispels the darkness of impurity. He is the light of joy that dispels the darkness of despair. And he is the light of life that dispels the darkness of death. That literally our only hope for the world is that we have Jesus. And whatever it is that our culture is facing, whether it's death, despair, impurity, ignorance, or falsehood, the answer is always the same. The answer is Jesus. Again, nothing wrong with government. We to pray for our government. We to, we to elect those we think and feel represent our values the most. We to do our part. We to you know, do what we can as citizens within a society to help society flourish. But bottom line is this. If all those things are all we have, we're dead in the water. We need Jesus. And Jesus' claim is simple. You need me, because I am the light of the world. The second thing Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, whoever, whoever. This is so interesting. Why? Because uh, the Christian faith is not exclusive. One of the things that religion does, and one of the things that the Pharisees did that so frustrated God, was they made this message of hope and life and reconciliation 
exclusive. That you had to earn or work or perform in a certain way. You had to be, you'd be perfect, if, if, if even as possible, to earn your place in God's family, which of course is not true. None of us can perform our way into God's favor because none of us are perfect. And even our best attempts to be perfect, God said, your best attempts are like filthy rags compared to my holiness. God is so perfect, we cannot even get close to him. So, so, so what does it mean for the Christian faith? The Christian faith is an invitation. And the invitation isn't exclusive to someone's, somewheres, the ones, the special ones. The invitation is to everyone. Well, we all know the pain of what it was like uh, back in primary school. Whenever it was, it came time to play a sport, whether it be basketball, volleyball, football, whatever. And, uh, and you have everyone line up one side of the room, remember this? And then two people were chosen as captains, right? And then what do they do? They take turns at picking people. And when you're standing in that line and the two captains are picking people, what's the one, one it's like a universal human thing. What's the one thing you're hoping in that moment? Please don't let me be the last person to be picked because that is the worst feeling in the world. And there's always that awkward moment when everyone's been picked and you're standing there and you're the last person and both captains look at each other going, you can have them. Oh, no, no, by all means, you have them. It's like, no, you can have them. And if, you're, if you've ever been really hurt, it's when they turn and go, hey, would you like to be the referee? That's when you know you're, you're, you're really in trouble. And some of you still have need for psychological counseling all these years later. Here's the good news about God. Man's last pick is God's first pick. Even though the world would say, we don't want you. You have nothing to offer. You're not good enough, athletic enough, smart enough. You're not good looking enough. You don't fit in enough. Whatever, whatever it is, you're not enough. Jesus says, I see you and I want you and I invite you. The invitation is to whoever. And I'm so glad because guess what? I'm a whoever. I mean, I was so far away from God, so broken, so anti-God, that only the grace of God could bring me into his presence. See, it doesn't matter what you've done, who you are, or where you're from. Uh, you know, we, we think in these terms of like, you know, well, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I'd done, if you knew where I was from, not just ge- geographically speaking, but where I'm coming from in terms of the mess that is my life. And again, religion tells you to be this or do this or not be from here. But Jesus' invitation is to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or where you're from. Why? Because of where he's from. Because of who he is. And because of what he's done. That Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate at Christmas the first half of the greatest miracle in civilization that God intervened in the human story. But he didn't do it in a way that was robotic or controlling or condescending. He sent his Son in this great dichotomy, the Savior of the world, a baby in a manger. And he allowed his Son to go through all the the growth developments that we go through, so you can face all the challenges we face, so you could feel the weight of humanity. And when the time was right, six months from this conversation, he stood in the garden to God, if there's any other way, let, let, it be, let it be so. But if not, then your will, not I, my will be done. And he died on the cross, the Savior of the world, for the salvation of humankind. And because of his perfect death, because of his burial, and the hope that we have in his resurrection, there is hope, there is help, there is life, and there is liberation to anyone who believes in Jesus. Not only is he the light, 
But he is the life. I am the light of the world and I am the life of the world. And again, even though our society is so caught up with, with superficiality running around and, and again, I'm not against Christmas shopping and gifts and trees and festivities. These are all great things and thank God we have them. But we especially as the church should not be so caught up in superficiality that we miss the main point. The reason for our existence is that we would be a light to the world. That we would be a a comforting, guiding, truth-telling light. That there is hope and life in Jesus. And as much as we, 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 we develop as people and societies, as much as we become more and more sophisticated and technologically advanced, the one thing we know is this. When you look at human history, every culture over, in time ceases to be. One day, our culture right now, our world, our way of life, our political structures, our governments, our nationalities, one day they will cease to be, just like every other culture has ceased to be. And when our culture is dead in God and some other cultures exist in their place, here's the one thing that was, the one thing that is, and the one thing that will be. There is hope for humanity in the person of Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. And as much as we want to be cool and live in the world and have the crack and all those great things, and we can do those things, we should never do them at the expense of hiding or hindering or holding back who we are. The light and life of God lives in us. Which takes to our third and final statement, which wasn't a statement Jesus made. It was a statement the Pharisees made. Because they immediately push back like our culture does. And says, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's a massive claim. Like, it would already be too much if you claim to know God personally and be his messenger as a prophet. But to stand here in this temple and to say that you are the God of the world. Like, Like, in fact, one of the reasons, one of the accusations the Pharisees eventually brought against Jesus when they crucified him was he said he was greater than the temple which he is and was even this moment. That's what he was trying to get them to see. These little freaking games you're playing with lights. I am the totality of every heart and every human desire. So their, their, their pushback was, well, how can you be your own witness? Which technically speaking, for those of you who love uh, scripture, uh, was, was, was a kind of a hearkening back to the time of Moses, where God told Moses that uh, a, a fact must be established on, on the validity of two or three witnesses. And the Pharisee said, you're only one person, which Jesus, if you read the story, goes on to say, no, no, I am witness, and my Father who sent me is witness, therefore we're honoring the Old Testament, as Jesus always did, and there are two witnesses. But beyond that, eventually all of his followers would also become witnesses. But the question they asked, and the question still asked today is, but can you prove it? Can you prove it? Like, like, here is Jesus making the claim to be the savior of the whole world. And all the Pharisees are doing is quoting Old Testament verses. Like, he's trying to explain that he is everything they've ever prayed for, beyond anything they ever hoped for, beyond everything they could even dream of, right there standing in front of them. And all they can do is quote to him the same limitations that control and shape their lives. And the answer, and I get it, maybe, maybe like me, I often get asked this question, can you prove it? And like we've said over and over and over again, it's kind of like a, a nullified question because uh, all the mechanisms of science, uh, all, all the best 
resource of human intellect, all, all the con- conversing and debating and dialoguing for several hundred years has come to the conclusion that just like we uh, as Christians would say, we can't ultimately scientifically prove the existence of God, well, nor can science disprove the existence of God. That's why most of you research later on, most intellects have come to the agreement that we just can't prove or disprove. Science exists to observe what is and try to explain how it got there. And if you pull back science all the way to its origin point, science say, well, the whole world began with a big bang. Who caused it? How it was caused? No one knows. But here's some, what they think, plausible reasons or explanations for how we got from a big bang to humanity today. What we have as Jesus followers is, is we have a story. The story is our story that we are witnesses. I don't know how the world began. I don't know all the in, in, intricate details of how God made things, how God did things. All I have is his word that informs me this is how the world was made. But the one thing I can say with absolute certainty is this. I was once lost and now I'm found. I was far from God and I was brought near. I was dead in my sin, but now I'm born again through the life and power of the Holy Spirit. I was once an orphan living in the world, thinking that no one loved me, no one cared for me, and there was no purpose to my life. And now I've been inspired as an ordinary person to an extraordinary purpose in Christ because God called me, God saved me, and God told me He's a plan and purpose for my life. And even though I have all the answers, explanations, I can say with conviction and certainty that I have experienced a risen Christ. This is so important. Why? It was like Leonard Sweet said, the strength of the church is not in its institutions, but on the authenticity of its witness. The world is not crying out for another organized religion. The world is tired of religious structures. The world is tired of, of hypocritical, superficial Religious hierarchies masquerading as people who claim to know God but live nothing like God and only want power and control. What the world is looking for is an authentic bunch of ordinary people who have a message they're not ashamed of that is worth telling. We have in us the light of life. We have in us the presence of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. If we have this light and if Jesus truly lives but we're able to tuck him away and hide him? What kind of light is that? Who wants to believe in that light? Who, wants to, who, who is in, in, enamored or endeared by that kind of testimony? But when you say, listen, we are witnesses. Witnesses means we have seen, heard. When we talk about what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, what we know God can do for us because of past experience, present experience, and future probability, People go, I've never heard anything like that. How are you so confident in suffering? How are you so at peace and turmoil? How are you so generous when you yourself are in need? Explain to me how you're doing this. And the answer is, I'm not. The answer is, greater is he who lives in me than anyone and everyone, including the devil, lives in the world. The answer is Jesus. You see, not only is Jesus light, and not only is Jesus life, But for those in the room who are Jesus followers, Jesus is also our Lord. He is our Lord. And it's not enough for us to play pretend with Jesus. It's not enough for us to go to church and to do all the things that we think we do to perform, to try to earn a favor that God has already given us in His Son. God has called us as His people to be witnesses to the world. 
We don't have to be obnoxious. That's not godly to be obnoxious. First Peter 3 says we should share our faith with respect. There's a tactful, respectful, opportunistic way that we can share our faith with the world. One of the ways we do that is through just giving out invitation cards and saying, hey, I would love for you to come to Christmas the movies with me. I mean, it's going to be a bit crazy. There's going to be some you know, cool things happening. And we're not trying to wow them with superficiality. We're hoping that in all that crack and in all that festivity, they will have a moment where it's in the popcorn, seeing the face of Jesus in a Jesus-shaped popcorn or something in the Kool-Aid of the Coke. That's a joke, by the way. Uh, something in the service would say to them, God exists and loves them and calls them. You see, our world is lost. And this is the only hope for the lost, that Jesus is the light of the world. And what this week shows is that we need more than ever to let that light shine. You know, uh, this week I was, um, my car was broken for a while. I just got it back on Wednesday after like six months of being in the garage. That's a resurrection of sorts, let me tell you. And, uh, but obviously it had been sitting idle for so long, so I needed to get it clean. So on Friday, I had it valet. Inside now, it was spot. I mean, it was, it was proper. You know what I'm saying? You know, just like cleaning your car, and it was like valet. You know what I'm saying? Like properly done. And this thing was spotless. We get in the car yesterday to go for a family day on a drive, and the first thing my wife says, can we stop for some pastries? I said, get thee behind me, Satan. There shall be no eating of the pastries in this perfectly valid car. I was like, children, if, if you drop anything, you will be expelled from this family forever. People ask, what happened to so-and-so? We say, who? Like, it was just that clean. And so we go on this family trip, and, and we're, we're, we're done. I'm on our way home, actually, and we'd, we'd heard of this castle near where we were. this big lake. There's a castle. We said, let's go try and find the castle. So we got to where the road ended, and there was a, like a laneway, and uh, just before I got onto the lane, I was still on the road, um, there's this tree that fallen down in the storm, and it's on the lane. So I'm like, oh, sorry, kids. You know, a, I'm kind of thinking, I don't want to go on the lane because my car is valid. Um, but there's a tree in the ground, and one of my kids says, I'll move the tree. And I'm like, uh, it's a big tree. He goes, yeah, let me try. And so I said, sure, why not? So... Stop the car, it's freezing cold, it's like half five, out he goes, down, and starts to try and move this tree. And of course, he's not having any success because it's a massive tree. So then his other brother goes, I'll go help him move the tree. And I said, sure, why not? So he helps out the car, and Lud's like, what are you doing? I said, you know, at least, at least can happen is going to expend those energy and sleep well tonight. That's parenting 101 right there, everybody. And so both of them are on the laneway trying to move this tree. Well, eventually Joshua says, ah, here, I'll go help them. I said, sure, why not? So now all three of them are out in the laneway trying to move this big tree. Eventually, Jonathan says, I want to go to it. I said, son, I think you're a bit too small for moving the tree. You're only two. So we're sitting there, and they're trying, trying, trying to make some progress. And eventually I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to help move the tree. Which Lud says, sure, why not? So I jump out. We all go down, and we actually successfully move this tree off the laneway. And I tell you, it was like we won the Olympics. We all looked around to that thing, guys. We're like, fair play. Fair play. Fair play. And we all got in the car, and all of a sudden the path is clear. So it's like, well, now we have to drive on the path, right? Like, there's no way to all this effort. We just reverse back out on the road and go home. So 
Without even thinking, I put her into drive and down the hill we went. And as we're following this windy road, it went from being almost dark to completely dark. At the end of this road, and right where the road turns by the lake, the lake had risen so the road was actually covered in water. So I got there just in time to see the water and I stopped. But when I stopped, the car began to sink. How was your Saturday, everybody? <laughs> so I put it in reverse and the car won't move. It's stuck in a mud rut. You know what I'm saying? Now, I have one child, I won't, I won't embarrass him, who immediately starts freaking out. Like, that's it, we're done. Literally, he's like, well, good thing the car is big enough for all sleeping. I mean, we're not going anywhere. And he's just like fatalistic immediately. Uh, you need to help those people. Um, and as I'm trying to get out of, the, out of the thing, it's like one by one by one, the kids start. So like the, the 10-year-old's freaking out, the 9-year-old's freaking out. You know it's bad when you're a 2-year-old who knows nothing. Starts going, this is not good. Like, this is bad, you know? And uh, so we're all there. The only one that wasn't freaking out of the kids was my oldest son. And the reason why he wasn't freaking out is because he's been here before. Not in the exact position, but he's been in a, on a journey like this before. And so he's confident in his father's ability to get him out of the mess. So, most, most of you don't notice, I drive an old uh, Land Rover Discovery. Uh, so I pop into lower gear range, stick into mud rut mode, I get the suspension nice and low, and slowly but surely, we work our way out of this really difficult uh, mud rut. I only had like 40 kilometers of petrol left, and by the time I was half the hill, I had 15 kilometers of petrol left, there was a lot of revving going on, and a little hopping and swaying. The car was sliding downhill, and it was, I was having a great time, personally. And, uh, and eventually, after a while, it got so dark, we couldn't see anything. But because of the headlights, we made our way out and got back to the road safely. And as we were on the way home, and we were just all laughing, because it's always funny after, right? For all, you do, for, all you, for all you fatalistic types who freak out in the moment, it's always easy to laugh after, right? I'm the person that laughs during, you know what I'm saying? But, but we're all laughing, and what a great story, what a great memory. But it's almost like God spoke to me and said, you may not be able to get out of the mess that you created for yourself. And you may not have the power and resource to extract yourself from literally the miry clay. But if you put your trust in the Father and His ability, you can be set free. And our world needs to know that they're not alone as orphans in the world fighting by themselves of themselves and for themselves. That there is a purpose, there is a plan, there is a Father who loves them and is with them. And when everything seems to be falling apart and everyone's freaking out, there is a peace and joy and confidence that we can have in Jesus. And so, for the last time, let's shift gears, not literally metaphorically this time, and go to uh, four ways then we can shine the light. Four, four practical things that we can do this week to shine light. Number one, the first thing we do is we can serve the lost. And the primary way we can serve the lost in this instance is by, by telling them the good news. That, hey, you know, in our conversations about what happened with the riot, in our, in, in our living and being and doing, you know, it's just trying to find an opportunity to explain to people, listen, yes, that may be what the media is saying, it may be what the world is saying, but there's another voice in this conversation, and it is the voice of God. And one of the ways we can serve the lost is by simply inviting them to come to church at the movies. I don't know if the Falcher team are ready, but can we hand out some more invitations? Do we have more invitation cards? Yes, can we? So we, I want to I give you, for the last time, some invitation cards. And I want to invite you with me this week to pray, come on, to believe 
and to invite that when we ask people, hey, would you come to Christmas at the movies, that they would come. And at, at worst, they'll walk away going, well, that was an interesting experience. Never had popcorn and Coke in church. But at best, maybe they leave with some kind of sense or maybe having experienced the power and presence of God for themselves. So we can serve the lost by extending an invitation. The second thing we can do is speak the truth. When we're asked our opinions, not that, we're, not that, not that giving people declarations help or, or by being overtly judgmental uh, as a Christian. Sometimes the most obnoxious people in the world are Christians. We should not be like that. Jesus was the opposite of obnoxious, everybody. We should be gracious and kind and respectful, but we should be convicted and we should be firm in what we believe. It's, oh, we're, even as a church, we're, we're philosophically liberal, but, or, but theologically we're, we're conservative or orthodox. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are entitled to our worldview just like everybody else. Do not shy back or hide away, but speak the truth. Because even though five may laugh at you in the circle, one is hungry and searching for truth. Three, we show them the way. And we don't show them the way by our perfection or our performance. We show them the way that in our humanity, in our frailty, in our weakness and our brokenness, there is a confidence. There is an anchor that we sung about earlier. There is, there is something, there is someone that centers us and gives us joy and peace and assurance, a confidence that can only come from God. When people see us floundering and failing and struggling, but see that, that strength within us, they, 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 they ask how are you doing this? And the answer is, I'm not. But Christ who lives in me gives me the strength. And fourth and finally, when we do these things, we shine the light. Jesus said to me all together back in week one, in Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. And now that picture in the back of our minds of the feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of illumination, the temple on the hill, Jerusalem, a city on a hill, all around for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Everyone can see that light. And Jesus said, I'm even greater than that light. But like that light, we are called to shine in a dark world. A town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your Light shine before others. That they may see your good deeds, which leads to goodwill, which leads to good news, and glorify your Father in heaven. That they may know the blessed assurance of a Father who loves them, who invites them, who is with them, and who can ultimately save them, no matter what place they find themselves. This is inspiring the extraordinary. This is what it means for us to be a lighthouse.